What's next? Uh, well, maybe a postscript to Rockwell, because most people, they're intrigued with Orrin Porter Rockwell. Uh, Rockwell, after this all happened, was making his way back. He, he took off for the East Coast. And he'd Rockwell been there. did. Yeah. But he was very unhappy back there. He was away from his family. He's kind of exiled, right? He was exiled. And, you know, what's he going to do on the East? He's not, not really a missionary kind of a guy, you know. Uh, so he starts back, and he makes the mistake of going down the Ohio River to the Mississippi and then catching, uh, changing boats in St. Louis. And a bounty hunter spotted him. Oops. And puts him under arrest and hauls him back to Independence. He languishes in jail for nine months in independence, tries a couple of times to escape, gets caught. One time he got caught because he helped a fellow prisoner escape who was fatter and slower than he was. And uh, in any event, he finally is brought up for trial. But he wasn't just lynched. No, he wasn't. That's a credit to the actually is actually is a credit to Missouri justice. Yeah, he was, and not only that, when he finally, after nine months, uh, Alexander Donovan again comes down and represents him and brings him up before the judge, and for a hearing as to whether there's sufficient evidence to hold a trial. Now, this is not a trial, okay? This is a preliminary hearing. Do we have enough evidence to go forward? It doesn't take a lot of evidence to go forward. But they don't. They don't even have enough evidence to go forward. They really have nothing other than the fact that Porter Rockwell's a Mormon and that he was in independence. And maybe he has a lore about him of being... Because even among Mormons, he has a lore of being kind of Joseph's vigilante kind of guy. Well, you know, at that time... So there must have been that lore about we, him. We don't... Well, maybe, but we don't... We know he was a bodyguard. We don't know about... The, any murders or, or gunslinging that he had done at that time. Uh, later, we do. In fact, uh, he kills one of the guards, of the Carthage Grace, who was guarding the jail uh, when, Joseph's murder, when Joseph was murdered. But he kills him under color of authority. He's with the sheriff of the county, and this idiot is riding down on them. The sheriff says, halt. The guy doesn't halt. And so Rockwell, under authority, pulls out his gun and shoots him. And uh, they never do try Rockwell for that because they knew they couldn't convict him of that. But in the West, he does develop a gunslinger reputation, and rightly or wrongly, a number of deaths are attributed to him. Um, and you'll have to read the books and determine okay. that. But, but at this time, I don't think he's, you know, he's not known as someone who's you know, killed a lot of people or a gunslinger or anything. <clears throat> uh, he escapes from jail, and he makes his appearance, not done, escapes, he's, he's released from jail. And, and when he comes back, he arrives in Nauvoo on Christmas Day, uh, and this is in 1843, actually, we're skipping a little ahead, but, uh, or is it, no, it's 42, I guess. Uh, during the festivities, a man with his hair long and falling over his shoulders and apparently drunk came in and acted like a Missourian. This is from Joseph's Journal, which is written by his scribes. I requested the captain of the police to put him out of doors. A scuffle ensued, and I had an opportunity to look him full in the face, when, to my great surprise and joy untold, 
I discovered it was my long-tried, warm, but cruelly persecuted friend, Orrin Porter Rockwell. And that's how he reunites with Joseph. And actually, that's from the history of the church, not from the journals, but that's, that's their transcription of the journal. So he was like set free in Missouri. Yep. And he came back. I wonder if that gave Joseph cause to wonder whether he'd be set free too. Well, you, you know, wonder. I'm, I mean, let's go back and face it and get this over with so that I can come back. Uh, you wonder. Because, I mean, Joseph had less evidence. If, if, if Rockwell couldn't be convicted, certainly Joseph couldn't be convicted. Well, but remember, at this point, there's no reason for Joseph to go back. I mean, he's free. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, sure, sure. Uh, okay, and, well, let's hear what happens And next. Missouri never does try to get him back on those charges. Even Missouri, I think, figured that's not something we have any jurisdiction over Joseph on. Okay. Remember, the, the real, even though he was let go on something of the technicality of the affidavit, the other reason oh. is that he never was a fugitive from Illinois, or for, from Missouri. So, you know, if anybody should have tried him for that, it should have been an Illinois court, and Illinois wasn't going to try him on those charges. There's no evidence that he, any, any hard evidence. Okay. <clears throat> uh, We'll kind of run through quickly through the, the third extradition because these three things play together uh, in the overall opinion of Joseph. Um, the, the next time is in June of 1843, so now we're skipping uh, again uh, forward. And Joseph is up at Dixon, Illinois, about 170, 80 miles north of Nauvoo, visiting relatives of Emma when another requisition comes from Missouri. They decided that they couldn't get him back on the Boggs case, but by golly, this treason thing is outstanding, and he is a fugitive from justice on treason. So it comes in. The Mormon judge there in Springfield, uh, Judge Adams, finds out about it, sends a runner to Nauvoo, makes the three-day journey in like one and a half days, arrives to find Joseph gone, gives it to Hiram. Hiram dispatches uh, William Clayton and Stephen Markham. And they take off, and they have this wonderful ride that is described in great detail in the journals. But they are riding night and day, uh, literally. They're maybe resting uh, for like four hours to give their horses rest and them a little bit of shut-eye, and then they're pressing onward. And they get up to Dixon in record time, and they inform Joseph that there are two people out trying to serve a warrant, a Sheriff Reynolds from uh, Missouri and a Constable Wilson from uh, Illinois, from Carthage. And uh, Joseph is fearful again that he'll be basically kidnapped and hauled back before he can have a fair trial. And he says, well, I think I'll wait here because I'm afraid of getting out on the road where I don't have any friends at all. And so he waits, and posing as Mormon missionaries, uh, Reynolds and Wilson make their way north, and they, they keep asking, where's Joseph, where's Joseph? And eventually they find him at, the Dick, at Dixon, at the home of the Wassons, and they arrest Joseph, and they kind of beat up on him, uh, because I think he was trying to escape. Uh, they tell him they, he can't even see his wife and children uh, and say goodbye, but I think he does. Do, do, do guys from Missouri have the right to go 
arrest somebody in another state? <clears throat> well, remember, <clears throat> maybe I didn't say this. That's a good question, actually. Uh, another requisition was sent by Governor Reynolds from Missouri up to Governor Ford, Ford at this time. And so there was a legitimate paper there. Uh, but did, does Ford have to agree? Well, Ford is supposed to agree. If the papers are in order, he is supposed to agree. Uh, he really doesn't make a decision himself on the merits. He looks to see if these are, are good papers. And if they are, he's, he allows them to be served. And then it's up to Joseph to, to ask for a habeas corpus to determine if there is really a problem, the courts can decide whether the papers are in order. But it's really not up to the... So the, the, so the guys going to arrest Joseph would say, now, Joseph, if you want to file a habeas corpus, you have the right to do that before we haul you back to Missouri. That's what they should say. Really? Yes. They should read him his rights and then well, do you want an attorney? And <laughs> We didn't have uh, the rules we have today we about reading Miranda. people's rights. We didn't have but, but I mean, they, they, they're going to arrest him. I assume what they what they want to do is get him on a horse, tie him to it, and take him back to Missouri. Exactly. And, do, and you're saying they don't have the full rights to do that. Joseph has an intermediate intermediary right to to get a lawyer and to whatever. Yes. But they want to contain him such that they can make sure that he is now within the legal system of Illinois or brought back to Missouri, but not escaping. Right. So they, they arrest him. He says, I want to see my lawyer. And they say, no, you're not going to see a lawyer. You're not going to see anybody. And they haul him back to Dixon. And they throw him into a, 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 a tavern. Now, he had previously arranged for a lawyer. Joseph's no dummy. And so the, he had a guy on retainer. He actually paid him, what, 50 bucks, I think, to, to be on retainer named Southwick from Dixon. So Joseph gets hauled in there, and of course, first thing he does, he sends Markham and Clayton out to look for lawyers, and he hollers out the window, help, I'm being imprisoned against my wishes. And so all around this little town of Dixon, you know, people are scurrying, and uh, Mar uh, Southwick, I believe it is, gets a uh, writ of habeas corpus from a local magistrate, and which says that Joseph is to be brought before Judge Caton uh, in a in a major city, uh, and Caton would be one of these traveling circuit judges, and that's where they would hear the merits. See, a, a justice of the peace basically can issue the the writ of habeas corpus. Any any magistrate can, but it's a judge, and usually a higher judge that actually determines whether there's just cause to send it back, whether the warrants in in, in effect is is right or not. So. Now Reynolds and Wilson, you know, oh boy, now we got this warrant. We got to go see Judge Caton. So they reluctantly set off. And uh, still, Joseph thinks that they're going to somewhere along the line when they get out of town, going to take off with him. They get as far as Paw Paw Grove, one day's journey. And they spend the night, and they want to hear, uh, the, the folks there want to hear Joseph preach. And Reynolds and Wilson say, you're not going to have our prisoner preached to you. And at that point, the sort of old guy that leads the, 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 the head of the group there, his name is David Town, an aged gentleman, we're told, stands up and says, <clears throat> you damned infernal puke. We'll learn you to come here and interrupt gentlemen. 
Sit down there, pointing to a very low chair, and sit still. Don't open your head till General Smith gets through talking. You cannot kidnap men here, even if you do in Missouri. And if you attempt it here, well, there's a committee in this grove that will sit on your case. And, sir, it is the highest tribunal in the United States. As from its decision, there is no appeal. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently Joseph gets a chance to address them. This reflects the state's right, the pride of, of the state. You know, back in the day... I, I read that, like during the Civil War, people didn't refer people from Virginia didn't refer to themselves as Americans; they referred to themselves as Virginians. So it sounds like a big part of Illinois' defense of Joseph was just pure state pride. Yeah, he's he's if no for all of his, for yeah. all of his fault, he is an Illinoisan, and Reynolds is a Missouri puke, right. and you know, and he and he shouldn't be getting high handed with them if they want <laughs> Joseph to speak. By golly, he's going to speak. Okay. Well, while they're there, they learn that Judge Caton has actually gone back to uh, or gone back east on vacation. So now they've got this habeas corpus, and it doesn't make any sense because they're not going to chase him back east. So they go back to Dixon to the same magistrate that issued it and explain, and he issues a warrant returnable before the nearest tribunal authorized to hear writs of habeas corpus. This gives them the freedom so that if the next judge turns out to be gone, they can at least go around till they find a judge. And they take off. Meanwhile, Joseph sends William Clayton on another hard ride back to Nauvoo. And riding day and night, he arrives in Nauvoo on a Sunday. They're having a big meeting uh, on the, you know, on the green, and everyone's there. He goes up to the podium where Hiram's sitting, and you can just see how this would play out if you're sitting there among the crowd. You know, by now, the people in Nauvoo know what's going on. They know that the law is after Joseph, and they know that uh, Clayton has been sent to tell Joseph, and now they see Clayton coming back, and he's talking, he's whispering in Hiram Smith's ear, and I'm sure they're just all wondering what's going on. And uh, Hiram gets up, interrupts the speaker, and says, I'd like volunteers for an important task to meet me at Masonic Hall in in 15 minutes. And the meeting breaks up, and over 300 men show up, basically ready to do whatever they're asked to do. And there's too many to even fit into the hall. They they adjourn to the green, and Hiram explains what's happened. uh, And immediately, that night, that same day, some 75 men take off with Captain Dan Jones on the Maid of Iowa, and they go up the river looking at every ship that comes down to see if somehow Joseph is aboard one of those ships. And another 150 men go with C.C. Uh, uh, Rich uh, with, uh, spread out across the countryside on their way to Dixon looking for the prophet. So you've got the party with the prophet coming back. You've got the men going up looking for him. And one other thing that happens, Markham and Joseph swear out writs against Reynolds and Wilson for beating them both up when they accosted them for assault. And Reynolds and Wilson are put under the arrest of the sheriff of Dixon. So you've got this unusual party, Joseph being the prisoner of Reynolds and Wilson, Reynolds and Wilson being the prisoner of the Dixon sheriff or constable, and they're all headed 
toward a judge somewhere. And, a, and a, hundreds of Mormons are out looking for them. Along the way, Joseph, who's no dummy as far as the law goes, convinces his, uh, his lawyers who are accompanying him that they should go to Nauvoo. Because under the Nauvoo Charter and the, the regulations promulgated in Nauvoo, Nauvoo has the authority to hear writs of habeas corpus. And his lawyers agree. And so the whole party sets off for Nauvoo. And you can just see Reynolds and Wilson saying, this can't be right. But what are they going to do? They're basically in prisoners also. And by the time they... Why are they prisoners to Joseph's lawyers? They're not. They're prisoners to the constable, but the constable's on Joseph's side. And uh, <clears throat> basically, uh, I think that the lawyers and everyone is saying, this is where we're going to go. Oh, and the other thing, the, the other practical reason why they're going to go there is, as they're going along, the Nauvoo Legion guys start meeting up with them. And when they arrive, Joseph says, I'm not going to Missouri this time. These are my boys. <laughs> and... Uh, of course, by the time 150 men come there, Reynolds and Wilson even realize that they're not going to pull this business about, we're taking Joseph. Uh, so when they come into Nauvoo, this is another great scene that I think would make an incredible movie scene. Uh, the people have been alerted, you know, that they're coming. The Nauvoo Legion decorate the saddles and bridles with the flowers of the prairie. Uh, Joseph's horse, favorite horse, is brought out to him. Emma and Hiram ride out, and uh, the Nauvoo Brass Band marches out to meet them. And then Joseph mounts his horse. Joseph, Hiram, and Emma enter the city. The, the Nauvoo Brass Band comes along, and the crowds are lining the streets and cheering. Here's our prophet back again. And Reynolds and Wilson, you know, sort of hangdog walking along, I suppose, or riding along behind. Um, when they get there to Nauvoo, uh, Joseph puts on a nice big dinner. Many people invites Reynolds and Wilson to sit at the head of the table, and Emma and Mother Smith wait on them. So, you know, he shows them the courtesy that they hadn't shown him. Uh, he also, however, uh, they hold a hearing uh, before the Nauvoo Municipal Court, of which Joseph is Chief Justice. Now, Joseph, of course would recuse himself. He wouldn't sit on his own case, but other members of the apostles and other leading citizens of Nauvoo are the other members of the court. They're the same guys that are the city council of Nauvoo. And they hear extensive evidence about Missouri and all the ills and why Joseph was under no sense guilty of treason to Missouri. And why do they hear all this evidence on the merits when on a habeas corpus hearing? Because Nauvoo City Council, who are these same guys, remember, have passed an ordinance saying that in the case where it appears that an arrest has been made out of private pique or out of prejudice or unjust, uh, whatever you call it, you can go behind the writ and look at the merits to determine it. And this is so unusual because almost no other court does this. Some legal scholars have looked at it, Elder Oaks has looked at it, and said that it isn't unheard of in this era. And it may not be unheard of, but it certainly went beyond what the ordinary average lawyer or 
citizen thought was appropriate. Probably far beyond. Far beyond, yeah. And, uh, and so once again, Joseph is dismissed. Reynolds and Wilson are outraged. They go back to Carthage. They go back to Springfield. They tell Ford, look, you've got to do something about this. And Ford basically says, look, I'm not going to get involved in this. So far as I'm concerned, your case is done. Uh, they went to a court. The court said there was nothing to it. To it. I'm going to let it lie. And, and it, let, it was let lie. I, there are a few things that I think are kind of fun. This very, the day after he arrived, Joseph, you know, brimming with confidence, goes and addresses all of his people to tell them what happened. And he tells the whole story about what happened. And I just pulled out a couple of quotes. And listen, Joseph probably, Joseph said a lot of very inspiring things. But I love these quotes <clears throat> because I think it shows the new militancy that Joseph has, has kind of undertaken. He says, before I will bear this unhallowed persecution any longer, before I will be dragged away again among my enemies for trial, I will spill the last drop of blood in my veins and will see my enemies in hell. To bear it any longer would be a sin, and I will not bear it any longer. Shall we bear it any longer? And there's one universal no that runs throughout the entire vast assembly like a loud peal of thunder. Mm. And then, I love this one because I'm a lawyer. I wish the lawyer who says we have no powers in Nauvoo may be choked to death with his own words. Don't employ lawyers or pay them money for their knowledge, for I have learned they don't know anything. I know more than they all. And... (laughs) <laughs> My comment on that as a lawyer is twofold. First of all, everybody everybody hates lawyers until they need one. <laughs> Joseph, he did know a lot about law. I mean, he learned a lot as chief justice of the of the court there. He was a smart guy, and he was probably smarter than a lot of his lawyers. And but he was also smart enough to hire the best lawyers. And he probably also knew the old adage which is that any lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. And I think that he just kind of let his tongue get running away with him a little bit. But I still think it's a fun quote. And most Mormon lawyers pull that out at one time or another, or most clients of Mormon lawyers probably pull it out. Uh, Sure. So another thing he said is, the Constitution of the United States declares that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be denied. Deny me the writ of habeas corpus, and I will fight with gun, sword, cannon, whirlwind, and thunder until they are used up like Kilkenny cats. We have more power than most charters confer because we have power to go behind the writ and try the merits of the case. And that's what really bothered the other more the other non-Mormons in Illinois. And so the Alton Telegraph newspaper, for example, wrote. Uh, we regard the location of this unprincipled scoundrel in Illinois as one of the greatest calamities that ever befell this state. He and those over whom he exercises the most unlimited control now hold the balance of political power in this state. Governed by no political principles whatever, they at every election throw themselves in the market like cattle for sale. And when a justice is attempted to be visited upon them, 
the arm of the law is found to be too short to reach them. And uh, I think that kind of summarizes how the anti-Mormons felt and perhaps gives us the, the setting for how the outrage spilled over when Joseph and the others destroyed the Nauvoo Expositor uh, the following year in 1844. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, a, a Mormon who grows up with a superficial uh, retelling of the history sort of just looks at it simply as Mormons were God's chosen people, um, Joseph was God's chosen prophet, and so of course Satan is going to persecute them and put throw Joseph in jail unjustly and persecute the Mormons because they're because they're so good and righteous. But we know that in Missouri, the problem, one of the major problems, other than the you know there was the economic problems, there was the political problems, there was the religious problems of competition between religious sects, you know, all sorts of issues, you know. But but there's also the saints saying, no, you think you think Missouri is your place. But God's given us this land as our inheritance, and this is our land now. You know, that was a, a, a pretty significant component to the anger that the saints and Joseph ultimately met. And it sounds like Illinois, there, there was at least some similar uh, justifications that people were basically saying, you Mormons think you can get away with anything. You think that you can have your state and your, your, your charter and your city and your prophet and that you're beyond the law. And not only is it seem that you implicitly believe that, but the rhetoric used by your leaders explicitly states that. And so not to ever justify cruelty or lynching or murder, but just from a human perspective, we have to sort of look at, look at the full situation and say that we contributed to the, to the um, emotions that led to the persecution. True? I think that's, that well, certainly is true. I, I think that, you know, it doesn't do us any good to take a simplistic view of history that way. Uh, and I'm not saying that I don't understand where Joseph Smith was coming from. I'm sure he felt terribly persecuted. He had been thrown in jail. There were people who were trying to put him down. There's no question about that. And he did achieve a certain degree of authority and notoriety, and it's, it's a natural human tendency to want to, uh, to use uh, the advantages that you have. Uh, but this didn't sit well with the others in this state. And I think it's a lesson we all can learn today. You know, I'm from California, and whenever I come to Utah, it seems to me that there's more prejudice against Mormons here, by far, than there is in California because of the majority position that the Mormons uh, have in the state and may not last forever, but at least for the, the time being. And you read in the Salt Lake Tribune especially, but even the comments in the Deseret News sometimes and the, the people who blog, you know, who, who sign on to the articles and the, the vitriol that goes back and forth between Mormon and non-Mormon. And, and yet we've learned a lot since, uh, I think, since Illinois. Uh, the church tries to avoid as much as possible uh, political, outright political issues as a church. And, and yet we have members, obviously, who are church members who are political, but you don't hear the prophet standing up and telling us which president to vote for and that sort of thing. So we've come a long ways. 
But we hadn't learned all those lessons in those days. And uh, unfortunately, it, it eventually cost Joseph his life. And I'm with you. that the, Nothing he ever said or did justified murder. But it did tend to make even ordinary citizens rather upset at this uh, clannish group of Mormons who seemed to stand above the law. So, uh, I, I don't know if you're comfortable saying it if you're not, but um, I'll probably never have someone who knows as much about the law and Joseph Smith and church history in my office uh, here in, in Logan, Utah, as I do now. Do you, do you want to just take a couple minutes and just talk about the you know, the, the events leading to Carthage and the martyrdom, just sort of to sort of tie the legal bow around his experience? Or is that... Well, I don't think we... Uh, maybe just to put the final comment to it. Uh, of course, when, uh, when the, the Nauvoo Expositor, as I'm sure most people who listen realize, was an anti-Mormon newspaper in Nauvoo, that said very scurrilous things about Joseph and the others. And we can argue about whether some of these scurrilous things were true. But the Nauvoo Municipal Council, of which Joseph was mayor, determined that the newspaper was a nuisance, a public nuisance, and ordered that it be destroyed. So once again, acting under color of law, and all of these things that I've told you about, Joseph absolutely acted under the law. He did not act as a mob or or he used the law for his own ends. And under color of law, it was declared a public nuisance and was destroyed. Uh, this caused, of course, outrage and lawsuits against him for having exceeded the bounds of the law. And was it proper use of the law? And this is where he eventually decided to surrender himself to the law and be taken to Carthage. He could have left. He was on the other side of the Mississippi River. But he went back and when he was put in the Carthage jail, it was for his own protection. He had been staying in uh, the Hamilton house, the inn there. But it was, they were feared that he couldn't be protected. And Governor Ford had gone to Nauvoo to get an assurance from the leaders in Nauvoo that there would be no riots by Mormons out in the countryside. They would stay in Nauvoo. Governor Ford sent his emissary to the folks from Warsaw, Tom Sharpsburg, that were marching toward Carthage, telling them to disband. It was the, the Warsaw militias. Disband, go home. You don't need to be there. The Mormons are not going to come and get Smith out of jail. But instead, they did not disband, and members now acting as a mob and not as a militia continued on to Carthage, where uh, we're pretty sure the Nauvoo Greys, who were guarding the jail, had it, Carthage, Carthage Greys, had informed them that they would have blanks loaded in their guns and would step aside, essentially, and not put up resistance when they stormed the jail. Why do we know this? Because I've gone back to the original transcripts of the, well, transcripts, the, the notes of the trial uh, of the murderers of Joseph Smith, and one of the witnesses was Wilson, who was a Carthage Gray guard, the captain of the Greys. And when he was asked point blank by the prosecuting attorney, did you uh, have blanks in your guns and let it be known that you had blanks in your guns uh, that day, he elected not to answer on the grounds that it would tend to incriminate him. And uh, no, it wasn't Wilson. It was, 
uh, it was another man whose name has now slipped my mind, but it was this very same man, ironically, who was the one that Porter Rockwell later shot dead. Right. But uh, so there's there's almost no question that Joseph was was killed outside the law, even though he had always submitted himself to the law and was in the Carthage jail. Not always submitted himself to the law. Well, submitted himself. There there was the one period of time when he was on the lamb in connection with the second uh, uh, extradition. But that's really the only period where he didn't at least submit, you know, get a legal ruling. You can argue about whether the ruling was just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. But, you know. And what about the arguments that... um, he had the right to destroy the, the actual newspapers themselves, but not the printing press, not the property. Well, I think that's probably where Elder Oaks comes down, that, uh, that there was justification for, doing the, for shutting down the paper, but not justification for scattering the type, and that Joseph probably could have been convicted of destruction of property, you know, which is no big deal. You, you pay the fine, you pay for it, whatever. Uh, but you don't get you don't you don't get lynched you don't get hung you don't get shot. But he wasn't that. held for that. Well, no, he was held for treason again. This this mysterious treason claim in Missouri in in Illinois. Okay, okay. The, the charge in Illinois once again was treason. And why treason? By who again? Uh, by other by the people of of uh, well, there were a number of lawsuits and. Some of them were lawsuits brought by the owners or proprietors of the Nauvoo Expositor, but there were other lawsuits brought by uh, other officials. And, and, uh, and they brought charges of treason. Yes. Now, I've got my partner, Joe Bentley, who's working with me on this. This is his case, and he could tell you all kinds of stuff about that. But suffice it to say that treason, once again, is a non-bailable offense. So the Mormons couldn't bail Joseph out of custody. But at this point, he was in protective custody. And again, irony of ironies, he wrote a letter to Orville Browning saying, would you please come and represent me in this case? He intended to stand trial and to try to beat it. And if not beat it, pay the penalty. Because he had confidence that he'd probably win. Well, I don't know that his confidence was that high. Uh, He would have confidence if he were standing trial in Nauvoo. I suspect he probably thought he wouldn't win in Carthage. Uh, But what would he lose? He would lose for having destroyed a printing press and whatever damages would go along with that. And maybe that would even include some jail time, but maybe not. That isn't getting murdered. That isn't getting hung. And the treason claim, that had to be bogus. I mean, I I don't think that that, uh, he would have been convicted of that. But we'll never know. Now, so here's, here's the big dilemma I have um, on a more personal level. You know, you go to Carthage Jail, um, and you hear the church missionaries say that Joseph was held without any grounds, and it was a, a scurrilous, you know, groundless lawsuit, and there was no reason. They never talk about the Nauvoo Expositor. 
They never talk about any of that. I'm not sure that's true, by the way. Is that, that, that okay? That's now, what I what I went. I, I haven't been there lately with missionaries there because I was there with the with the Joseph Smith Papers. I went project. a few years. I went a few years back. But but we certainly got the full story when I was there from the other historians who were there and right. who were on the payroll of the church. But I mean the missionaries. Well, sometimes missionaries don't know the whole story. Okay, okay. You're right. No, that's okay. And, and I've had that same experience. I've okay. I've had missionaries who haven't known the whole story and haven't told the whole story. But but from a if you look at this from a from a personal perspective, even the way you sort of narrated it, you said it was an anti Mormon newspaper. Well, really, it was started by as you know William Law, who was second counselor in the first presidency. So it would be. You know, to, by today's standards, it would be like Henry Eyring leaving the church, um, uh, or, or you know, James E. Faust, you know, and basically saying, "I was with the prophet; he was practicing polygamy, but he's been denying it publicly, and I'm here to tell you in the novel expositor that he was practicing polygamy, and he was preying on young um, immigrants from Europe and from England, and telling them that if they didn't." Um, you know, become his wife, that, that bad things would happen to them. Well, the historical record sort of validates all of that. So to sort of label it as an anti-Mormon paper created by anti-Mormons telling a bunch of lies, which I'm not saying you did, um, you know, that's where it's frustrating because members sort of say Joseph went like a lamb to the slaughter. It was pure and innocent as a driven snow. But that's that's not really even close to accurate. It's a very complex difficult situation that most members have never been given even a bit of a full sort of comprehensive understanding or even a high level fair treatment of what the circumstances were surrounding Joseph's martyrdom. Is that true? And and do you wish it were different? You know, uh, can you empathize with the frustrations that some people feel? Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it was your cousin that told you you have a great gift for asking compound questions. I do, I do. Uh, so there was about 100 parts of that question, <laughs> of which I'll probably forget 99 of them. But, okay. Uh, first of all, in, in characterizing that as an anti-Mormon newspaper, I merely meant that some newspapers are pro-Mormon, some newspapers are essential or neutral, and others are out to destroy the church. And even though William Law had been a counselor in the presidency, he was clearly out to destroy the church. He'd set up his own alternative church and was seeking converts for it. But he still believed in the Book of Mormon. Yes, but it wasn't and, the church that the, Joseph Smith led. He, he, he felt like Joseph was a fallen prophet. Yes. But he and, still and believed in the restoration. I, and but by, he still believed in the LDS restoration. Okay, so maybe by saying anti-Mormon, I was shorthanding no, what no, I no. should have said which is anti-Joseph Smith-led Mormons. Okay. Uh, but he was clearly anti-Joseph Smith. Right. Uh, and uh, so that was kind of like the first part of your question. <laughs> and then, where did it go? <laughs> uh, oh, quite pure as the driven snow. This was written by John Taylor as like a eulogy for the prophet. Now, when you go to a funeral, how many times do you hear about the dead guy and no, all the bad things. No, he there's did. no problem with that. You you hear the really nice. That's nice fine. Things. That's fine. But I mean, we're members of the church. We have a lot of commitment to it. Um, shouldn't we have a basic understanding of of the circumstances that led to his death? Yes. And I'd say ninety five percent of Mormons don't even know the basics. Well, they've probably never heard of the Nauvoo Expositor, and, and just sort of view it as like the whole rest of Mormon history. 
good Mormons, God's chosen people, God's prophet, being Satan going after them, you know? Well, you actually are asking a very interesting philosophical question. Obviously, my own personality is I have to know. I have to know the truth. That's why I've, I've studied these things. I could not live my life as a Mormon and not know the history behind the, 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 the claims of the church. But am I any happier because I know it? Uh, in other words, the, the other philosophical question I ask you is, do you have to be, do you have to be interested in history? Do you have to know these things to get the spiritual uplift that, you, that some people get from reading the Book of Mormon and the fine things that are preached, and I do believe that for the most part they're extraordinarily fine things, that are preached from our pulpits each Sunday about being good Christians, living good lives, husbands being faithful to their wives, parents taking care of their children. Uh, all of these things are, are great things about our religion, taking care of the sick and the poor. Do you need to know all the history uh, to be happy? And in justification and, and in defense, I suppose, of those people who haven't studied history, I say fine. If that's the way they want it, that's up to them. For me, I need to know the history. And I absolutely would agree that we as a church should not try to hide the history, that we should lay it out there. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so happy and enthusiastic about the Joseph Smith Papers, is that this will put out the primary data from which people can make decisions about Joseph. Now, of course, there's other primary data that aren't a part of the papers. We don't publish what others were writing in Nauvoo about this time, and that's all important as well. But at least the words of Joseph will be out there. So, um, that, so to end, one of the things that's most uplifting to me is to hear someone like a Leonard Arrington say at the end of his life, in spite of all I've been through, in spite of all the troubles, um, I remain having a firm conviction of the truthfulness of the church and that Joe Smith was a prophet, etc. Um, what can you share with us in some closing thoughts, uh, some quotes or just some stories or your personal feelings that in spite of all the good and bad, but especially the bad or the, or the tough stuff that you've read, um, you know, the stuff that has uh, maintained and even strengthened your conviction uh, as to Joseph's uh, mantle as a prophet of God and as someone who, who deserves our love and admiration and respect. I think what I have learned that the more I have studied Joseph Smith, the more I feel that he is an extraordinary man who was inspired of God. Now, I don't, I don't purport to know myself how revelation works. My own feeling is that it's not quite as direct a pipeline as most Mormons feel. I don't think that God takes the hand of Joseph and moves it on the page to write the words down. I think Joseph was a human being capable of making mistakes, and I suspect that he did. It's probably not my place to judge what was a mistake and what was not, because I wasn't there at the time. I'm not a prophet. But just as a lawyer and looking at these legal cases, I can tell you that had I, knowing what I know today, represented Joseph in some of these things, I would have been cautioning him 
Don't get ahead of yourself here, Joseph. Don't, this doesn't look good. These are bad. This is going to put you in bad stead. Remember what happened in Missouri. Let's not let it happen in Nauvoo. But that's easy for me to say 160, 70 years after the fact. And a lot less easy for Joseph, who was in his 30s at the time. And after all, I'm nearly double that age. Uh, Joseph would not necessarily have known that. And so here's this man that has produced this remarkable book, the Book of Mormon, a remarkable series of uh, revelations, uh, even discounting the ones that were basically personal revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, but the ones that weren't. A remarkable series of revelations, a remarkable series of discourses in Nauvoo, uh, from the King Follett Discourse on down, stuff that, that, that were so far ahead of his time, in addition, was a political man who understood politics, who ran for president, who had a political platform that he was working on, and actually, in many respects, quite a progressive platform, uh, and who, uh, at the same time, was faced with these 100 to 200 legal cases that had to be just sucking up his energies, and in the case of the extraditions in particular, making him fearful that he'd be sent back and, uh, and murdered in Missouri. Whether those fears were justified or not, I believe he honestly felt that way. If not, he would have gone back and faced trial. So, and, and just uh, to add, yeah. he, he was mayor, at least at some points, yeah. you know, head of the Legion, general of the Legion, and he had acquired at least 20 or 30 wives by this point towards the end of his life. So, I mean, I just want to add to the yeah. fact that this man had a lot going on. Had an incredible amount going on. And... Uh, and he learned a lot about the law. And as a lawyer, that impresses me. Uh, and so, yes, uh, even though I think Joseph was a human being, uh, I have faith. And I have faith in, in the work that he created. By their works, you shall know them. And I'm sitting from the seat of someone who's been in Mormonism his entire life, but I think that Mormonism does far more good than ill. Uh, not to say it never does ill or that members of the church never do ill, but that basically it is a good thing, and so that's where my lot is cast. Well, um, Morris Thurston, I just want to thank you so much for coming on Mormon Stories. This has been fascinating. Thank you very much.